Alright, you can put away your hymnals and pick up your Bibles and turn to Psalm 1, which is our sermon text for this morning. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. Let's begin in prayer together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You have told us in your word that today is the day that the Lord has made. Rejoice and be glad in it. And as we look at the blessed man of Psalm 1 today, I pray that we will come to rejoice and be very glad for the work that Christ has done for us and continues to work in us from the beginning until this very day. You have not left us alone, but rather you have positioned us in such a blessed way that we need not worry about the troubles of tomorrow. So I rejoice in the opportunity today to preach your word, to dive into your precepts, and to walk in your counsel. I pray that the skill of the preacher today would not affect the delivery of the truths of your word but rather let your spirit work in the hearts of this congregation as only he can. Take me out of the way, O Lord, and let your will be done today in this meeting. I pray all these things in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The book of Psalms, to which we now find ourselves during this sermon, is commonly referred to as the Psalms of David. In actuality, the book of Psalms has various authors, of which David is the majority contributor, but also includes up to seven other authors in total, including Solomon, the family called Asaph, the son of Korah, and even a psalm from Moses. The reason I begin in this manner is to show that the book commonly referred to as the Psalms of David actually had several authors, which by implication means that it is a compilation of psalms, or what we also know as songs. And if it is a compilation, then it has a compiler. And if it has a compiler, then it most likely has a method and purpose for its compilation. And to clear the room of any speculation, I'm indeed alluding to the fact that if there was a compiler, and this compiler had a method to its compilation, then there is a very high likelihood that Psalm 1, as we see it in our Bibles, is not necessarily the first psalm written in the book of Psalms but rather it is the psalm chosen by the, com the compiler that best suited as the introduction to the breast of this wonderful book of poetry and wisdom. Naturally, we might ask then, who compiled the psalms? 
and we may find ourselves fretting as we come to terms with the fact that we, what we believed or kind of took as being given to us by natural transmission was actually manipulated by a compiler and delivered to us in that format. And I agree it was indeed manipulated, but not in the negative sense that we might feel about that word. In all likelihood, and by the speculation of many scholars, the book of Psalms was likely compiled by Ezra the prophet. But even if Ezra was not responsible entirely for the compilation, it is well attested that the compilation was done during the general time period of Ezra, after the return from the Babylonian exile, and at a time in Israel's history that God was pouring out covenant blessings upon Israel. Therefore, for the purpose of this sermon, I would reiterate that the book of Psalms was indeed compiled and was not naturally transmitted. There was indeed intervention made. But brothers and sisters, this was not done in any different of a matter than every other book of our canon of scripture was transmitted to us. We believe that the entirety of our Bible is not naturally transmitted, but supernaturally transmitted by God's intervention and leading. Therefore, I conclude that not only is this book of Psalms God-breathed, in the same manner as Paul speaks of the rest of the scriptures to Timothy, but that the order itself that it was compiled in is also God-breathed. And this observation will tie back into the conclusion of our sermon. So let us begin with Psalm 1, which we now understand was not originally Psalm 1, but that we can indeed understand ultimately by God's intervention to be the Psalm 1 that God always intended it to be, for his glory and for the edification of his church. So let us turn to Psalm 1 and be edified by God's holy and inspired word. Starting in Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man. The Hebrew word for blessed here is eser, which in its simplest rendering means happy. It also just happens to come from the same root word for the biblical name Asher, a name that we now know means happy. So we can rightly rephrase Psalm 1-1 as happy is the man. Now I feel it my duty to make a proper distinction here. Understanding happiness in the biblical sense will require a renewing of our minds. And here is why. Happiness for the believer will at the most fundamental level be different than the happiness of the unbeliever. Because what the believer defines as happiness will differ from what the unbeliever defines as happiness. Definitions will fundamentally change how the user understands the words used. Here is a real-life example. Every year, especially in June, we hear the statement that love is love. I hope we all see a problem right off the bat, but if you don't, hear me out. To say that love is love is to say nothing at all. An is statement is an often an attempt to liken one thing to another and by so doing reveal more information about the nature of the initial thing. For example, we can say a ball is a sphere, right? Another one, a ball is not a square. No argument. The is and the subsequent word used in these statements help us to know what the initial word is like. Now compare the statement, love is love. Does it make sense? No. Why? Because it lacks any supporting definition. The first two examples 
helped us to understand the thing in question by giving us something to compare or contrast it to, whereas the last example added no useful information to help us in our understanding. If the proponent of the statement, love is love, was being honest about what they mean, maybe they would say something like love is tolerance, and by doing so give us more information to understand their meaning. But the issue seems to be that they don't want a definitive meaning. They want a malleable one. In, in contrast, the Christian might say something like love is whatever aligns with the character of God and his intended plan. From a Christian worldview, and by looking through the lens of Christ as a perfect example, we understand that love means aiming to save the world, but it also means condemning the sin of the world. It means granting forgiveness, but it also demands repentance as a precursor to that forgiveness. For the true believer, love is robust, and it will not always be comfortable, but it will always be good, because God is the essence of good, and he is the definition of what is good. And we run into the same issue with the definitions in our psalm today, with the term blessed or happiness, and that we must define it in order to understand what the psalmist is really telling us. I once walked by a humanist, humanist agnostic, atheist alliance booth at a festival, which had a sign that read something along the lines of enjoying the good things in life, happiness, family, love, music, etc. So I went up to the booth and I asked the men sitting there, what makes these things good? Long story short, and after probably an hour of dialogue, they could not answer the question first without answering it by saying something along the lines of happiness. Of course it's good. Who would ever say that happiness wasn't good? And to that statement, I, I can largely agree, we can all agree, that happiness is good. These things are self-evidently good, but only because there is a natural moral lawgiver that, that has been given to us, a moral law that has been given to us by a divine creator of the universe, who has also revealed himself in his word. It should be noted that the atheist who denies the existence of God at this point will almost invariably say that goodness is whatever society at large contrives to be moral and good. Coincidentally, making man out to be exactly what they so adamantly want to reject, God himself. Of course, the consistency of their logic becomes challenged if they ever are stranded on an island inhabited by cannibals who think it morally right to eat those outside their own tribe. By their logic, that is good. Fortunately for us as Christians, we don't stand in an ideological void like the atheist does. But our worldview is formed by the word of the living God. And in regard to the meaning of the word blessed in Psalm 1, it just so happens that one of the best interpretation methods that we can use is to interpret scripture by using other scripture. And there is one passage in particular that I think will help us understand the psalmist here. It can be found in Psalm 94:12, and it reads, Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. Notice how Psalm 94 starts in the exact same manner as our text by saying, blessed is the man. In regards to interpretation, the fact that it is identical in that first phrase is very useful for us to compare. And again, blessed here means to be happy in some fundamental way, and it is a very positive word. To be happy is evidently a good thing. I, really doubt we would argue that point. 
But then the psalmist goes on to say, Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord. Now, discipline doesn't quite give us the same feeling as being happy, does it? Generally, the word discipline is used when you have fallen out of favor with someone who has authority over you, such as your pastor, your father, your teacher, your employer, and there needs to be correction made. And I kind of can guarantee that none of us like to be on that side of discipline. Perhaps I can help you recall memories today from your childhood childhood of you misbehaving towards your mother while your father was at work and when you, your mother made the threat when your father comes home he's going to give you what you deserve and we can probably recall the dread that overtook us as a result of the concept of discipline from our father perhaps it was here for the first time in your life that you turned to christ and said come quickly lord jesus lest we experience the discipline of our father but all joking aside, the psalmist shows us in Psalm 94 that he does not assume the problem we seem to take issue with, that somehow discipline is outside the scope of blessing, but rather places blessed happiness together harmoniously with the discipline of the Lord. And we all, if we are fair in our analysis, will likely recognize that without the righteous discipline of our fathers and our parents in general, we would not be who we are today. The discipline more than likely produced some amount of good fruit in us. And if our earthly fathers produce good fruit in us, how much more should the discipline of our heavenly father produce good fruit in us? Listen to Hebrews 12, 5 and 6. And have you forgotten exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So let's be this, make this clear, brothers and sisters, that the blessed man is the man whom the Lord disciplines, whom he chastises, whom he loves as sons, and whom he aims to share his holiness with. Blessed is that man, and how could a son of the Most High God be anything but blessed? So we continue, so we continue in our text. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now there is some debate about the first verse of Psalm 1, on whether the psalmist is saying the same thing three times, right? Wicked, sinners, scoffers, all with basically the same connotation in each instance or if the psalmist intends to convey a progressively more resolute type of sinfulness, going from walking to standing to sitting. For the purposes of today's sermon, I do find that that progressively more resolute type of sinfulness is the most convincing theory, as it seems to emphasize a very natural pattern of human behavior in which a man who indulges sinful behavior will soon indulge in greater degrees of sinfulness over time. We are told in 1 John 3, 4, that everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Kids, when you practice something, fill in the blank, baseball, hockey, piano, etc. When you practice these things, would you say that you tend to become better or worse at that thing? I hope the answer is that your hard work pays off and that you are now better for the time you spent in practice, and at the very least, not worse off. You planted a tree, you watered it, you pruned it carefully, 
You waited for it to grow, and now it has yielded fruit to your benefit. A fundamental principle in life is that that which you feed will under normal circumstances grow. And this can be the, a great blessing for us. But it is equally true that when you make a practice of sinning, you will get better at sinning. And you will yield fruit in accordance with your works. I think this is why the psalmist begins in Psalm 1 by saying that the blessed man walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Because any practice or habit in life inevitably begins by taking counsel with someone, by listening to someone's advice, perhaps even your own. It is true from my experience of those in my life who have made shipwreck their faith that it started by taking counsel from the world. It started with questioning the faith with doubts and quite honestly with questions that have been refuted and disproved throughout the history of the church and that invariably they were only asking in an attempt to justify a sinful behavior to which they themselves wanted to indulge. Brothers and sisters, sin doesn't start with sitting down in the seat of scoffers. It doesn't start in the sitting down in the congregation of the wicked. It always begins in the secret recesses of your mind with a simple yet sinful idea that is indulged and fed until it is a beast that will devour you. No case of adultery began by ditching your husband or wife for someone else. It began with a sinful picture in your head or perhaps on a screen. No lie began by wanting to deceive and disappoint your parents. It began with a sinful idea that you could get away with something wrong without the consequence. No theft began by hurting someone on purpose. It started with a sinful idea that you were owed something that wasn't actually owed to you at all. And no murder began with the taking of someone's physical life. It started with a sinful hatred of them in your heart. Brothers and sisters, sin doesn't start with sitting in the seat of scoffers, but it does end there. Sin begins with secretly taking counsel with the wicked and then eventually standing in the way of sinners by acting on that counsel with your sinful fantasies, until finally you reach your destination in the congregation of the scoffers when you sit down with them in open rebellion against God's holy law, making a mockery of Calvary. And make no mistake, brothers and sisters, God sees your heart, and he will not bear with your sins forever. With great carefulness and fear of painting the wrong picture, I quote Hebrews 10, 26, and 27. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Be careful that you do not become an adversary of Christ by making a mockery of his sacrifice with your deliberate sinning. Brothers and sisters, we either grow towards righteousness or we grow towards wickedness. There is no neutral ground. If you are not running toward Christ, then you are beginning to run toward wickedness outside of Christ. The blessed man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. So turn from any indulgence of sinful ideations and turn to Christ for absolution. So we just came through what the blessed man ought not to do, and now we will look at what he ought to do. 
Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Verse, tells, verse 2 tells us here that blessed man's delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Brothers and sisters, we just saw in verse 1 before that the sinner takes the counsel of the wicked. But here in contrast, we see that the blessed man, that righteous man, takes counsel in the law of the Lord and he meditates on it day and night. So we see a pattern that the path of the sinner begins by taking the counsel of the wicked and the path of the righteous conversely begins by taking the counsel of the righteous, in this case, through his holy law. And what better counsel of righteousness is there than God's own holy and righteous law? And quite honestly, brothers and sisters, I found myself at a bit of an impasse as I prepared this section of the sermon. It seems to me from the text that the blessed man is the man who loves and keeps the law of God. But this then would mean that to be truly blessed, you would have to have kept the law of God perfectly. How else could you say that you were truly delighting in him when you were living in active obedience or disobedience against his own law? If the blessed man is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, then brothers and sisters, I must confess to you all today that I am no blessed man. I am not the blessed man of Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is not talking about me. And it's not talking about you either. Which one of us has delighted in the law of God perfectly? Which one of us has meditated on God's law both day and night without pause? I think I can say quite fairly that the answer to which one of us is not one of us. Which one of us has fulfilled the prerequisites to be blessed, be, to be the blessed man of Psalm 1? And thus here in our, is our dilemma that we are sinners in the eyes of a righteous judge that demands perfection, and his justice will be served. But there is good news to be heard, and it is this, that although we are not the blessed man of Psalm 1, that God has provided for us. If you would turn to Isaiah 53 in your Bibles, I think it will be helpful for us here to read it. Listen to what Isaiah has to say about the blessed man that we know to be Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53, verse 5 through 11. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every way to his own way, every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was put; he has put him to grief. 
When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his land, in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Did you hear that? By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, that's Jesus Christ, make many to be accounted righteous. Brothers and sisters, behold the blessed man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who walked not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stood in the way of sinners, nor sat in the seat of scoffers, but came and lived the life we ought to have lived, and died the death we deserved to die. He has taken the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. By nature, in our father Adam, we are not the blessed man of Psalm 1. But in our father, Jesus Christ, the blessed man of God, we have been made righteous in the sight of God by the perfect blood of the Lamb. And we may now truly call ourselves blessed. Brothers and sisters, the impasse has been made passable. Justice has been fulfilled on our behalf. And though we may struggle to keep the law perfectly, we may still live in confidence in our position before God. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 tells us that since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. Brothers and sisters, we may struggle to keep the law perfectly, but Christ has fulfilled it for us, and he hasn't left us alone, but rather he has promised us a helper. Romans 8.26 says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Brothers and sisters, we may struggle to keep the law perfectly, but the Spirit helps us in times of need. And like Psalm 94.12 told us, Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. By nature, we are not covenant keepers, but rather we are lawbreakers. And therefore, like Psalm 94.12 says, we must now be taught out of God's law, and we must be disciplined in accordance with it by our Father, because we are now adopted sons and daughters in the household of God. So as blessed and reborn men and women, let us walk not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but rather let us delight in the law of the Lord, and let us meditate on his law day and night, this doesn't mean literally sitting and reading God's law every moment of the day. That's impossible. But what it means, brothers and sisters, is that in every waking moment, let us discipline our minds to think about godly things, whether we read God's word or sing a song as we wake from our sleep, or pray a prayer as we prepare for our daily work, and then perhaps then, even then, we would meditate on God even during our sleeping hours. And then let us rest in the assurance that though you are a sinner by birth, 
that you have been reborn and made into a saint. You have been justified in the sight of God, and now the Spirit is at work in you to sanctify you, and he will therefore position you in a way in order that you may grow in him. Because Jesus has positioned us in a way that we may grow in him, I believe Psalm 1 for this reason continues into verse 3 to say that the blessed man is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. First, the psalmist tells us that the blessed man is like a tree, right? Think about it. A tree grows slowly but surely upwards towards the source of light that provides for it. And as it grows, it becomes more sturdy and secure with roots that delve down deeper and cling to that strong foundation. The psalmist then says that the blessed man is like a tree planted by streams of water. This tree did not sprout up in that position naturally, but rather the gardener intentionally took that tree from some arid place and, as the psalm says, planted it. Planted it in the most favorable and beneficial environment near streams of water so that the roots may have a continual source of life to drink from. It is this tree that the psalmist says will provide fruit in its season and which leaf will not wither. And how could it do anything but deliver a bountiful harvest, since everything needed has been given to it without measure? Now let's apply the imagery of the tree to our own position. By nature, we were wild trees growing up in desolate places, doomed to die under the fiery desert sun of God's righteous judgment. But Jesus did not leave us in that doomed state. Instead, he gently removed us from those desolate places and planted us by streams of water. We now live under the warm sunshine of God's providence, and our roots delve down deeper and deeper into the foundation of his word, and the streams of his living water ever pass by us, giving us everlasting life. And because he has provided for us in every way imaginable, we will indeed bear the fruit of righteousness. Blessed be the name of the Lord, for he has provided for us in all things. The psalmist continues to say about the blessed man, in all that he does, he prospers. Remember back at the beginning when we talked about how in order to understand what it means to be blessed, that we must renew our minds. We discussed that in order to understand something like love or happiness, that we first need to define what it means by an appropriate standard. So what is prosperity? What does the psalmist mean when he says, in all that the blessed man does, he prospers? Now I'm going to have to give you a nuanced answer here. There are clear examples in the scriptures where righteous men are rewarded with physical prosperity, Abraham being a very clear example. And I think there is a real sense that God, from the beginning of creation, intended to give his children, Adam and Eve, and their offspring, the world, and almost everything in it. And I think the fact that it was only almost everything, excluding, of course, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, has clear implications to the intentions of God, notably that not everything is good for us, and that God knows exactly what is good for us. Job is a perfect case study here for the concept of prosperity. We are told at the beginning of the book of Job that Job was both righteous and exceedingly wealthy. And the implication is that there is no contradiction there. 
Job had served God well, and God had in kind blessed Job with substantial physical blessings. But into the story comes Satan, accusing Job of only serving God so intently because God had blessed him with so many things. And in what feels a lot like a plot twist, we see that God is more than willing to entertain Satan in this accusation. I think obviously knowing full well that he would receive the glory in the end. So he allowed for the test to be made, and just like that, Job lost everything. His wealth, his health, and his posterity. The righteous man lost it all. Why? Why did God strip away everything from a righteous man? I don't have a clear answer for you from the story. But I suspect that it was in order that God would receive all glory, that Satan would receive all shame, and that the faith of Job would abound in the end. Please abide me as I read a few verses from John Piper's poem called The Misery of Job and the Mercy of God. Behold the mercy of our King, who takes from death its bitter sting, and by his blood, and often ours, brings triumph out of hostile powers, and paints with crimson earth and soul until the bloody work is whole. What we have lost, God will restore, that end himself forevermore. When he is finished with his art, the quiet worship of our heart, when God creates a humble hush and makes Leviathan his brush, it won't be long before the rod becomes the tender kiss of God. So I must conclude the question of what is prosperity by simply saying that prosperity is whatever brings us closer to conformity with God's image. For some people, physical prosperity will be something that helps conform them to the image of God by giving them opportunity to be generous, like God has been generous. For some, contentment with little will be what conforms them to God's image by helping them to love which, that which they already have and to better understand the sacrifice Christ made when he stripped himself of all glory to come to this earth. And for some, suffering will help them to be conformed to God's image by helping them recognize the powerful sacrifice that Christ made for them. But I'm sure God's purposes for his people in this sense will range in degree with how many unique people there are on this earth. God has a unique plan for each and every one of you. And brothers and sisters, we simply don't get to know or even need to know why our neighbor flourishes in physical wealth while we labor tirelessly or vice versa. But what we do know is that as Christians, we will prosper in the end. We will prosper in every way manageable. We will inherit all things with our elder brother Jesus. And I believe for the time being that the blessed man is the man that contents himself in all circumstances. Philippians 4, 11 to 13 says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That, my brothers and sisters, is a prosperous man and a man who is truly blessed. And although we may not know why one man prospers while another man suffers, we are told the fundamental truth by Jesus in Matthew 5.45 
that he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Though the unjust may be like trees, to use our previous imagery, growing in arid places, they may still yet receive the many graces of this life, including the sun and the rain. They may by happenstance, and even for the glory of God and his purposes, succeed in their wicked endeavors, if only for the purpose to be torn down in the end by the judge of the world for God's glory. And there they will receive their reward for their actions. This is why the psalmist says in verse 4 that the wicked are not so. They're not prosperous like the blessed man is prosperous, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. The wicked may take on every appearance of prosperity in this life, but we know where they will go in the end. And that is not a place that we will envy, but rather that will be a place that we will pity. As you can see, the righteous and the unrighteous alike may even experience hardship and suffering throughout their life. But the righteous man alone does not fret, for he knows that there is a reward that awaits him. He will be recompensed for his suffering. But there is nothing for the unrighteous. He is like a chaff that the wind of God's judgment blows away. The psalmist states in verse 5, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The wicked may live their entire lives prosperous in the eyes of the world. They may have money, cars, houses, women, and perhaps even become kings and rulers of nations. But they will not stand in the judgment. Any semblance of a crown that they have made for their head will be stripped from them. And they will bow down their heads before the throne of the true king, and all before being thrown into the lake of fire. The wicked shall not stand in the judgment, and sinners will not sit among God's holy saints. So let us glory in the fact that, verse 6, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The Lord will separate the chaff from the grain. The wicked will perish, and all the suffering that God's saints have endured will be recompensed. And brothers and sisters, it is okay for God's people to look forward to God's justice. We will stand in the host of heaven, worshipping the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And as judgment is passed on Christ's enemies and reprobate sinners are cast into the lake of fire, we will give shouts of joy, saying Amen and Hallelujah. For justice has been paid in full. But as we conclude our time here today, brothers and sisters, do not forget where you came from. God has shown mercy and grace to us as sinners, and we ought therefore to pray wholeheartedly for our enemies to be saved by God's grace in the same way that we were saved by God's grace. By nature, we were not the blessed man. By nature, we were the children of wrath. We at one time walked in the counsel of the wicked. We at one time stood in the way of sinners. And we at one time likely sat in the seat of scoffers. We did not delight in the law of the Lord, nor did we meditate on his law day and night. For he was not our Lord, he was our enemy. We were not a tree planted by streams of water, but rather we were wild trees sprouting up in arid places, far away from any source of nourishment and doomed to destruction. But blessed is that man, our elder brother, 
Jesus Christ, who walked not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stood in the way of sinners, nor sat in the seat of scoffers, but who delighted in the law of the Lord, and on his law meditated day and night. He is a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. And brothers and sisters, this tree has yielded fruit. And now we come full circle. At the top of the sermon, I made the point that the book of Psalms was indeed a compilation. And if a compilation, then very likely has a purpose to the order of its compiling. And I believe that purpose, at least in part, is that Psalm 1 has described to us what the blessed man, Christ, looks like. And that Psalm 2 goes on to describe the reign of that blessed man. And that this all sets up the rest of the Psalms to teach us the way of wisdom as we become and live as blessed men in Christ Jesus. So if you turn your page over or go over to the next Psalm, Psalm 2, and we will end with this reading. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heaven laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. And brothers and sisters, listen carefully to this last verse. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen.